This is the AI Artifacts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Brian Warmoth, with Sarah Luger, PhD, and we are back again to go beyond the hype, under the hood, and into the fray to see what's happening in AI this week. This is the AI Artifacts Podcast, and we are back. I am Brian Warmoth. Hi, I'm Sarah Luger. And you know who we are. You opened this podcast up to listen to it today. Uh, hopefully you've heard us in the past. If you're tuning in for the first time, we're happy to have you here too. So we have... Welcome. Yeah. Sarah, how was your week? It was good. Interesting. A lot of interesting news this week. Kind of a, a little bit of a departure, and I'm excited to talk about that. A departure and a return. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what, I spent my week yeah. watching way too much layoff news in the tech and media world. And I was uh, struck getting into the news for this week that that's not what we're seeing in AI right now, for the most part, No, which is no. noticeable. And I, we're, we're saying this from the Bay Area where this is happening, Most or where, yeah. I should, where I should say a lot of these companies are hiring. I, I even saw there was a, a ranking on LinkedIn that came across my feed this week that was showing what the most common titles were that companies were looking for in the oh, Bay really? Area. There were two AI titles on there. There was like head of AI and I need to go back and look at it, but there was another one that was just like AI engineer or something. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that it's sounds right. Very common. Indeed. We, we've got a few things to get into. We've got a great guest coming up on the interview portion later today. We're going to get into some new territory that I, I hope everybody enjoys. But we've got some news pieces that came up that connect with our conversation last week about the state of big tech companies, the gamma, as we have standardized in our, our discussions the here. That, that's the big tech companies. I'll, I'll establish for everybody the Google slash Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft, Meta, and Apple. So let's, let's talk about this one first. The FTC, that's the Federal Trade Commission, is investigating OpenAI and Anthropic investments that were made by Microsoft, Amazon, and Google right? These, these have come up before. We've discussed how, you know, Microsoft has a very famous relationship through their investment in OpenAI. They were part of that whole brokerage of power struggle drama that unfolded in November. Meanwhile, Amazon and Google have invested in Anthropic, which is a competitor founded by some former OpenAI folks there. I'll read from the key passage here about their interest in this. This is a topic we've, we've touched on briefly before. Regulators, this is in New York, the New York Times the regu regulators have typically focused on bringing antitrust lawsuits against deals where the tech giants are buying rivals outright or using acquisitions to expand into new businesses, leading to increased prices for consumers and other harm, and have not regularly challenged st stakes that the, the FTC's inquiry will examine how these investment deals alter the competitive landscape and couldn't form any investigations by federal antitrust regulators into whether the deals have broken laws. There's been a little back and forth going on at the federal level about who should be getting into this, the Justice Department, the FTC, etc., to actually look at OpenAI's work and, and regulate them, I guess. So the, the unique attributes that we brought up before are, here are that the power being exercised is not necessarily through ownership or buying companies outright. But as we saw, Microsoft stepped in and had a lot of influence in Sam Altman coming back to OpenAI. And I think that's, that's a flag that has been waved for the regulators to look at and say, hey, does this 
cross our line of being, you know, actionable. Yeah. I mean, was anything surprising here? Did you catch any details? You yeah. Uh, Brian, I think you nailed it. The partnerships and investments are being approached by these tech companies. So regulators are looking at partnerships and investments as novel ways that the gamma are sidestepping conventional FTC rules, mm -hmm. right? So in the past, it was like a straight up merger, an acquisition, perhaps investment that's, that hit an ownership threshold. Mm -hmm. That would be, that would fit the rubric that they were looking for. Now, partnerships and investments are clearly strategic from our perspective. And the US government, also British and European offices that are parallel in their remit are looking into this. But they're they're trying to modernize their their approach to regulation and map to their existing laws mm -hmm. work in these cases. And is anything, you know, more broadly, LLL, LLM innovation requires vast amounts of data and compute. And the interconnectedness of the providers of these services is complicated. Yeah. So the FTC is supporting regulation and trying to see if old regulation maps to these problems or if they require new approaches to analyzing how these companies may be violating current laws because perhaps in that case then they need new regulations to monitor them so this mm -hmm. is really a mapping problem yeah. this is the first major effort to understand how these cop these companies operate and lena khan who joined uh, FTC in 2021 mm -hmm. is trying to overtly modernize the government strategy. And she notoriously sued Amazon for price manipulation. Again, looking to see how Amazon was using new ways of uh, new ways beyond classic mm -hmm. price manipulation of making algorithmic and business decisions that fell in the business's favor as, in, as opposed to that of the consumer. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, this is about how do we how do we protect the consumers? And this is that's what the FTC is looking at. And we should know, you know, she so she's a as part of this Biden administration going into an election year. This is, you know, I'm not making any election calls here, but, you know, this is potentially the last year of her, you know, run in this role. Rain. Rain. Yeah. Right. Maybe maybe they get four more years at the end of this year that's a whole different discussion but you know this is the fourth year of her you know reign here at the top of the ftc and she has tried to make some shall we say neutrally innovative Moves. uses of paying law and policy so you know I, th I think the clock is ticking on this for her and potentially in some cases but we'll see what happens mm -hmm. i've got another microsoft mm -hmm. story i wanted to bring up today which mm -hmm. is a quote oh it's, it's, it's there's a heavy ick factor to the story, right? But there's also some, something important. So people may have seen there was a big story this week about deep fake of Taylor Swift going, shall we say, viral on social media, specifically on X was, was where this was taking place. And it got brought up with Satya Nadella in an interview that NBC News did. And he he commented on it. He said, "Yes, we have to act on." It. And he was responding directly to the use of deep fakes to depict Taylor Swift in, shall we say, like 
pornographic uh, pornographic unseemly unseemly ways i can't comment on the specific ones i haven't like i told you i did see one ai image of taylor swift in my instagram feed this week that was in a tortoise shell i believe and it was not it was more surreal and not necessarily like she was she had there were clothes involved in the picture it was just fine from you could probably show it to a child and it would be okay if not weird shall we say anyway he said yes we have to act he said i think we all benefit when the online world is a safe world and so i don't think anyone would want an online world that's completely not safe for both content creators and content consumers therefore i think it behooves us to move fast on this now to me what this speaks to is two things and one is not necessarily ai related it's more of just like a platform idea for like general like is your platform family family friendly you know for you know and like also should kids be on there's an extended issue of should kids be on social media channels anyway in many cases but you know and i thought it was noteworthy that x did not respond with any comment to nbc news when asked about this there's a whole history and we don't want to they make, also I don't, I don't have no interest yeah. in turning this into an x twitter podcast yeah um, they don't have I, a pr department so yeah but I think this incident does speak for how accessible this technology is and yes. the yeah. age that we're in where image output can be, you know, images from, from AI-generated sources can be disseminated so efficiently in large numbers. Yeah. You know, and to me, that's what struck home most about this. And it, it also touches on something else we've we've discussed, which is celebrity likenesses. And there's, you know... Th- there's an age-old question in in art and popular culture, regardless of pornographic nature, I mean, which is a whole other thing, about what should be done from a commercial perspective with somebody's likeness and and what what can be done with it. But you brought up an interesting point we were talking about with this with in, before the podcast, and I thought it was worth discussing. Yeah, I, I want to reiterate a couple of things you've said. Yeah. One is that the scale of dissemination. Mm-hmm. Is unprecedented because this is using platforms, phone apps. This is these are images of, of appearing to you wherever mm-hmm. you may be, so long as you have your phone, right? This is the the scale is is amazing. There's also an extremely low barrier to create these images, or you know, as we talked about last week, the the Biden robocalls. So mm-hmm. images voice replication the, the barrier is very low someone does not need to have a computer science background they only they need very little input data and with public figures this data is readily available mm-hmm. again from your phone you know but so it doesn't even a, need to be public figures you know, recursion these of like high school kids doing oh. stuff right that oh that are yeah parallel in nature even at a smaller scale on whatever social and perhaps channels. more insidious yeah, yeah. And, and right yeah and that's because just as no if one's, not more. These, are, the, these are kids yeah exactly and this is some and so you know we're hoping that that there are new rules about this so mm-hmm. that there's some threat of of laws need jail, to catch up, laws, money, need to catch up some... with this. laws need to catch up with the technology <laughs> yes. you know this, and this some gonna, threat. to what we were saying earlier yes. about the ftc whatever they do with whatever justification uh, you know and at the legislative level, even the law needs to catch up with techno- technological capabilities like this, especially when they're used to, you know, create this kind of content about people, right? And I think, to exactly, me, to me, that's the that's the base of it all. Yeah, I do think it's good that we don't have the laws yet, mm-hmm. because 
I think that that's a reflection of our open society mm -hmm. and that we're, we're at the, we're right at the precipice and we're figuring out what culturally we want and we don't want. And so we're going to try to put people first and protect people. Mm -hmm. Now, I, the, the idea that we were kicking around earlier was that of the liar's dividend. And so we've made a link to this in the show notes, basically. This is the concept what we're you seeing up here. Me. Yeah. Yeah. What we're seeing here with the robocalls, Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift has a very clean image. This is a surprising pornography associated with her. Is, it's surprising. But even over the last few weeks, I think that digital consumers are realizing that AI fakes are a possibility. Mm -hmm. And so as we become more aware of these fakes, it also means that it erodes our trust in all digital content. Because why are we making decisions based on something being factual or not factual? Often that's who sent it to me? Is there a byline? Can I trust this source? But as we'll see in a couple of the other stories we'll point to, that is also becoming more suspect. So what happens in that case is we stop trusting media and most of us get our media from online sources or visual, like you could get on YouTube, mm -hmm. right? So that would still be, you could watch YouTube on your TV, but the you're getting it in a format that that makes you then not trust all of that, the information on that format as much. And on some level, when you reach a point of loss of trust, you become apathetic and just stop engaging. And so this cycle could actually make us in general not care about what's on YouTube as much and not watch YouTube and not care about who's robocalling me and not go to the polls because what's the point? I have no idea if something online is true or false and I've got other things to do than, than be a participant, you know, an unknowing participant in this kind of vast true or false game. That's really. a, that is the sad, that's the sad <laughs> outcome. Honestly, that is the sad outcome, right? Did, yeah, did, did you catch, it is. A, so, yeah. no, please. Well, I was going to ask if you saw on a related note, you know, we talked about George Carlin the other week. Did you see his, yeah. his estate is suing the makers of that? Good for them. AI generated comedy yeah. special, right? Um, yeah, which is that's another exercise, and I want to I want to distinguish these are two, uh, and this isn't a defense of deep fakes of Taylor Swift. I'm just saying it's a different instance because they're creating something that looks like it was made for him. May it seems like it was made by him, even though he's he's deceased. I don't know how many people think it is, but it's a, you know, it's 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 taking. Here's here's what I'd say: you can't just take a likeness of a celebrity. Like if you did this with a living celebrity, I don't think you. I, I think it would you probably would have seen legal action much more quickly, right? Uh, if you did this with yeah. John Stewart or somebody, but you can't just create a brand based off of the person's likeness and make a commercial product and put it out there like this. Right. So I, I yeah. think this seems like a very healthy use of the legal system to set some definitions and, and potentially determine some precedents here. Exactly. And his family owns his likeness. You know, mm -hmm. this is something that the estate of Elvis deals with, the estate of Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. You know, there are very, Marilyn Monroe, there are very valuable people. There are people who have lived, who have cre who are creatives and have had 
an important role in our society who continue as corporations after their death to generate revenue. Mm -hmm. And while someone who's alive- Yeah, exactly. And someone who's alive might be actually online saying, oh wait, I didn't approve of that. It might take, there might be a slightly longer Mm-hmm. feedback loop to identifying these violations but mm-hmm. yeah this is this is something that could be money out of someone's pocket mm-hmm. at least from yeah. which from the last few minutes what we've been talking about might be an easier thing to to fight and i should add that the, the clips in here as i mentioned in our last episode where we discussed george carlin the the comedy is of significantly lesser quality than any of the real life George Collins stuff. <laughs> I so. appreciate you watching that too. Uh, I didn't to watch the whole that. thing. I, I had no patience to watch. You that. watched enough. I just watched some. I got enough to you get watched my enough. in there. Yeah. All right. Let's. There's one more okay. story that you want to bring up. Oh yes. Yeah. So when we talk about newspapers having fake stories, so we mentioned that in the past. One of the issues that was highlighted in the New York Post this week mm-hmm. was. A continuation of the story that we mentioned last week that news using Google to discover news stories erroneously upvoted AI generated stories over those that were written by real humans. And so there's just more follow on with that, with that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about this first. Where, Yeah. yeah, where, where basically. A, di- a deeper dive on what Google is doing. In the past, we noted that their representative, Danny Sullivan, was saying, hey, we evaluate what is ranked in our algorithm by quality. And this article pushes back and goes goes deeper on the topic and says, what Google is very concerned about is SEO gaming. And so they're, they are not concerned about AI generated, if an AI generated article is of high quality, and but they are concerned if the articles are manipulating their search engine mm-hmm. to move up the ranking. Mm-hmm. So generative AI articles in general are okay. Then there's a discussion about quality versus copying. And in this situation, the New York Post found an article they had written and a copied version that was using generative AI. So basically it's a reminder that Gen AI can output near facsimiles of existing stories. And in this case, it had the same images, even had the same ads. And that was getting a higher rank than the original New York Post story. So this is about SEO. This is about quality. This is about IP. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I think what it highlights is that Google has been a gatekeeper and we don't know exactly what's going on under the hood. Yes, we understand the page rank algorithm, but generative AI can really throw a wrench in what Google is trying to do. You know, if they're honestly going about this saying, hey, we want quality and we're alarmed if you're SEO gaming, I get it. But now from the outside, it looks like a different story. And again, that erodes trust. Yeah, you're right. When you when you say it that way, I, I'm struck by the academic differences in definitions of manipulation versus optimization <laughs> when you're talking about yeah. in these cases. And we use and we accept Google as being 
a great way to for information discovery. You can discover things. And so yeah. I think it's really, it, yeah. It's funny. So my way of go using Google News has really changed quite a bit over the years. And I don't use it nearly as much for very casual news discovery. I use it much more for toggling a couple of options and finding really specific things with an extra layer of, you know, search query added to it with like past 24 hours, past day, you know, or past, past 24 hours, past week, et cetera, what it allows you to look for. And I go and use it as a tool on that level much more than I do just to see what's on the front page. I have other better front page apps and sources that I, I use for that now. Also, it's it's become a much more mixed soup of quality. And yep. it's bizarre yep. because I back up as, a, as somebody working in news and media 10 years ago. It was a very mysterious process for getting, a, especially a young news organization's RSS feed to be picked up by Google News and for them to include stories from your publication there. And now when I go to a front page experience or a simple query search set of results on Google News, it's like what you're talking about. And I'm not, I don't even know which ones are AI generated. I haven't spent a whole lot of time looking and trying to identify, oh, I think this is an AI site. This is not an AI site. But what I do see even at a high level is just a lot of lower quality news showing up and publishers Exactly. Maybe maybe what I'm seeing is AI generated sites, and that's that's what's showing up there. But I just mean sites with really non-standard names and funky that like, you've never heard of poor, before. Poor writing, you know, within the first line, yeah. and like to the point where it seems yeah. to me this really shouldn't be in the results, and like it's questionable to me that this publication should even be included in in news. So I. You know, maybe I need to catch up and see what they've I, done to change their algorithms and inclusion bar, but it seems much like like they they're much more wide open than they used to be in terms of inclusion, for better or worse. I agree. Often worse, I think. And I yeah, often worse. I think that we might be seeing also the trickle down of the racial layoffs in media and journalism. Yeah. Uh, but I do believe at this point. I, what I'm trying to say is it's not going to get better very soon, but at this point, I do think this is uh, algorithmic and the quality problems with generative AI actually, you know, transcend just text. And so we've included an article, how the new GitHub Copilot, there's downward pressure on code quality. So basically what the the belief is from from their findings is that quality of generated code is going down. Mm -hmm. And this makes sense, you know, as we're, we're talking about the different outputs, image, yeah. the image quality, text quality, the, I mean, so, so yeah. text quality. Yeah. And so maybe with image and text, we're able to identify that it's not made by a human. Mm -hmm. It's very good, mm -hmm. but it maybe we can identify that it's not made by a human, which would be in some measures quality. But in this case, code quality is measured differently and, and it's going down. So I it's was really interested in those factors they looked outputs. at to test that, right? Yeah. So like, at a high level, do I understand this right? They were essentially looking at code that was committed and then how often it was corrected or deleted mm -hmm. relatively soon thereafter. Yeah. 
And I think that's that was like a flag they were using to determine, oh, this was probably not good code. It was quickly implemented, but it was either changed or deleted in a very like churn churn yeah they, they, the churn yeah they had this kind of notion of churn yeah. yeah it's it's not used it's not reused as much yeah the just how we access code libraries mm -hmm. our behavior reflects how this is how this code is being used in the real world and so if the code for example is moved less it implies that it's being refactored mm -hmm. and reused less we will include the link here, yeah. but it's very interesting because this is link. like, what is quality mm -hmm. and how do we evaluate it? So. Yeah. Clearly it is encouraging people to move fast and break things. And I'm, this is like, the, yeah. whenever people say that, I'm like, <laughs> I feel like there needs to be two different ways of saying that. Are we moving fast and breaking things in a good way or a bad way? And to me, I, I think it's going to be worth looking at and seeing what this does to software companies taking this approach in the long term, in the medium term. Uh, yeah, great point. Well, but I, I agree. And that's and the final final comment from this article was that there was a study of the software developers use experience mm -hmm. using Copilot. And so they said the results of this research indicate that developers are divided. They met the Copilot. Most of them had used Copilot before the survey. And the attitude was mostly positive, but many participants just don't use it. Mm -hmm. I think that's it was really seemed that it was still quite mixed, yeah. the results of opinion, yeah. the opinion survey. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of fake versus real news from your, your earlier point there, let's get into Two Truths and Lay AI for this week. So I've got three for you. I'm, I'll be the first to admit that these were not, well, they're, they're, there's some subtle themes through all of them, but I, these were all three so good. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to swap one out or two out and try to make a better thematic set. I think they all work. So for those who don't know, Two Truths and Lay AI is our weekly segment we do where I will come to Sarah and I have found two real news articles and one fake article generated with the use of AI. And then I will read portions of each of these stories. Uh, I'll give you the real news publications from the real news stories after we're done. And Sarah will try to figure out which one is fake. So I have three wins under my belt now. We're on episode 13. We've not done this every episode, but so including far, last week, including last week. So I have, I have momentum. I have momentum. Uh, yes. AI mentum this week. I have, I have fear. So I have this will fear be the test to see if I learned from my successes and mistakes this week. All right. Sarah, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Here's number one. Elderly Gardener's AI experiment stuns TikTok. In the suburbs of New Jersey, 78-year-old Beatrice Simmons has ignited a digital storm by enlisting, enlisting AI to transform her garden. Seeking to cultivate a verdant sanctuary, Simmons unwittingly thrust herself into the spotlight when her AI-conceived garden blueprint captivated TikTok audiences. With the help of her niece, a junior at nearby Rutgers University, Simmons, a devoted gardener, turned to AI algorithms to optimize her backyard oasis. However, what emerged was a perplexing tableau that transcended mere horticulture. Unbeknownst to many, Simmons' garden layout bore a striking resemblance to renowned mathematical theorems, with plants meticulously arranged to mirror geometric patterns and Fibonacci sequences. The unconventional aesthetic 
a nod to mathematical marvels, sparked a flurry of shares across TikTok and other social platforms. Yet while some hailed Simmons' garden as a mathematical masterpiece, others viewed it as a miscalculation. Neighbors, perplexed by the eccentric display, voiced their discontent, citing the clash between the garden's abstract allure and the neighborhood's traditional charm. As debates raged on digital forums, Simmons found herself at the center of a peculiar intersection between art, mathematics, and suburban sensibilities. All right, that's number one. Excellent. Here's number two. Woman thinks she bought a horse. Excuse me. Woman thinks she bought a simple horse calendar. Starting Starts noticing odd things pop up. The calendar is a popular addition to many households, both as a tool for tracking dates and as a simple decor element. However, when TikTok user Megan, there's a name linked there, so it's a, it's a, it's a handle, I should say. I'm not giving it due justice there. When the TikTok user Megan unpacked the one she got for her suburban three-quarter acre homestead in Ohio, the woman noticed something was off. As she flipped through the pages, Megan noticed that many of the horses, which were supposed to be the main feature of the publication, were disfigured and contorted. More specifically, some horses <laughs> posed for it. Okay, so I got this calendar in like October, but I just seen and I just seen the bar, I just seen the Barbie movie. I was like, "Yay, horses! That sounds like fun." Well, we opened it. It's January eighth today, and my boyfriend points out, "I think this was made by AI." Like, how can a calendar that I buy at the grocery store for ninety nine cents be made from AI? I mean, look at these horses. All right, that's number two. <laughs> number three, we tried a dating app that lets a chatbot break the ice for you. It got weird. Users of the new dating app Valar train a chatbot to go on first virtual dates, virtual first dates, I should say, with for them with the bots of potential matches. We tested it out, and our chatbot tried to woo matches with talk of nuclear warfare. More than a decade of dating apps has shown the process can be excruciating. A new app is trying to make dating less exhausting by using artificial intelligence to help people skip the earliest, often cringy stages of chatting with a new match. On Valar, people create dating profiles by messaging with a chatbot instead of filling out a profile. They ask questions about what they do for work or fun and what they're looking for in a partner, including preferences about age, gender, and personal qualities. The app then spins up a chatbot that tries to mimic not only a person's interests, but also their conversational style. Valar was developed by Ben Chang, who previously worked as a product director for the My AI chatbot at Snap. He met his fiance on Hinge and calls himself a believer in dating apps, but he wants to make them more efficient. We tested the app, and after the initial chat, covering key questions such as age, work, and hobbies, the chatbot persona that Valar created got to work in four different matched conversations on its first day. One of them started by the reporter-trained chatbot, which opened with, if you own any pet and it accidentally launched a nuke, how would it have done it? We had not discussed nuclear weapons and missiles with the chatbot during its initial training. Chang says, there are safeguards on the app to avoid inappropriate topics, and that this response seemed to fall quote-unquote, on the border of silly versus inappropriate. All right, and that's number three. Okay. I I think number two is true because I think because the tone 
as well as the human query, how can a calendar I bought for 99 cents at the grocery store be made by AI? Woman, that's exactly (laughs) the product that AI, like, I want to go talk to all American civics classes. This is a race to the bottom (laughs) that we're seeing right now. Also, I think that's cool that you can get horse calendars. That like that's cool. But yeah, that is definitely a true story. Valar, I mean, that does make sense because, you know, match.com was based on a huge amount of survey data about actual compatibility between people and the reality was that the algorithm was so good that they actually had to loosen it a bit so that you would I didn't know this. meet your match in like six months instead yeah. of six weeks because they actually had to, you know, this they had to a huge amount of intellectual property associated with building their great algorithm yeah. and they needed to generate enough revenue and have people stick around to pay the monthly fees, you know, so yeah. that, so that they did make money. Like they were too good at, they were too good at it. So I did not know that. I, I respect, um, I think it's like a Harvard business, you know, sort of, how do you figure out how to charge for yeah. something? The, I think I think that Valar, that very well could be true. And the tone of the way it was written, actually having quotes, that was good. So I, I think that, that that, like, I'm I'm sure about two. I'm pretty sure about three. But one, oh, one, I want you to be right. I want you to be real, one. And you can't say Fibonacci without getting me excited. I mean, that's like... That's like my personal bingo. But the the tense, as debates raged, <laughs> it sparked a flurry. The verdant sanctuary, it ignited a digital storm. So one of the things about early uses of AI and language were, was to generate the crawlers yeah. for news stories. So like on CNN. And, and one of the ways to summarize information is to remove is to nominalize verbs yeah so to remove ownership of something so instead of saying hey there was a forest fire that ravaged you'd say forest fire devastation and you'd be like oh no (laughs) who did it or how but it was just a thing and it was chaotic and so i'm gonna say that one is fake because of that construction yeah and i think that three is totally like sure and also that's pretty good. Like, how would your cat start? A war? I mean, I could think of ways mine was. So I think one is a fake. I was struck by that, too. That I could, If you're a cat person, that actually seems like a kind of <laughs> I was like, like... <laughs> reasonable small talk question for early dating. I, I, yeah. I know cat people bring up. Yes, you are correct. The The Fibonacci gardener is the made up story. That's such a good idea, though. Yeah. I, yeah. I love the construction, though. Math, yeah, while, the neighbors yeah, were pissed while off. While some hailed Simmons what Garden as chaos? a mathematical masterpiece, <laughs> other views, others viewed it as a miscalculation. There, there miscalculation. Some, there nice I know things. that was there was some nice. That was good. There were some nice verdant things. sanctuary. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. If I could only be so lucky to live in a verdant sanctuary. <laughs> but yeah, the the first ignited a digital storm. No, number two came from <laughs> boardpanda.com. I love you. I'll we'll include the link. That's true. In the right? show notes. Oh yeah, it's very true. There's some pictures of the horse calendar. Yeah. How could the how could a calendar bought at the A and P? How could this happen? Global logistics. Yeah. Yeah. And the and number three is from our friends at Wired. 
com. It was it was a feature. Oh, nice. So I think a, that's a good idea. So basically, the chatbot takes the place of the good boring survey. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. It's yeah. just a different interface. Works things out. Yeah. yeah, it gives you gives you a hand. Yeah. All right. Sorry, man, but Fibonacci almost got me. I was like, oh, Fibonacci. I love that it included cool. that. I, I did some follow up <laughs> prompts to get it to, the, to that point, but I, I I felt like I felt like I might get you hooked with that. But almost it. All right. Yeah. Well, great. No, I'm going to turn things over to the interview we did earlier this week. Hope everybody enjoys. And we are back with another interview for episode 13. Sarah, would you like to introduce our guest this week? I would love to. Brian, today we have Sarah Jaquette Ray joining us. She is a professor of environmental studies at Cal Poly Humboldt in Arcata, California. She's the author of The Ecological Other, Environmental Exclusion in American Culture. Her research background is in the environmental humanities, environmental justice, and her current work is at the intersection of climate change, social movements, and human psychology. I have read her recently published, A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool in a Warming Planet. It is fantastic. And she has an edited book for editors coming out this May, The Existential Toolkit for Climate Justice Educators. How to Teach in a Burning World. We are so excited to have you here. Please welcome Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. And yeah, that's a lot to talk about there. But yeah, thanks for having me. And we went to college together, so it's worth it. We did. We played soccer together, where I've never played on a soccer team that didn't have at least two Sarahs. It's it's wonderful <laughs> to have you on, Sarah. I, I, thought this was have re- I thought this was a really interesting <laughs> premise that Sarah... Luger, our co-host, presented to me when she suggested we do this episode. Maybe maybe you should actually set that up a little bit, Sarah, and talk about the intersection that we're going to cover today. So what I'd like to introduce is a topic that has been very relevant for Brian and I of late, which is artificial intelligence anxiety. There's a lot of forward progress in the technology that we call AI, but artificial intelligence is a tool that is used by humans. And many folks I talk to are very concerned about how AI will negatively impact their lives, including their jobs. And one of the the things I take away from these conversations is that I can talk about numbers and use cases and products, but I sometimes have a hard time articulating holistically how to view this big world topic of artificial intelligence in a way that helps folks who aren't in the field see paths forward for them that are less stressful than they currently, you know, uh, produce less stress than they currently feel, and also allow them to learn more about how data, AI, online activity affects them. So, kind of decomposing these big anxieties into smaller morsels is something that I've really thought after these conversations. And that led me to uh, look at Sarah Jaquette Ray's book, where she approaches a different topic, climate justice, and the anxiety associated with that, and really has actionable perspectives, as well as philosophical recastings of how to view both the problem in general and your perspective, your adjacency to that problem. Like how, how is this 
in your mind? How do you relate to it? And how can you recast this discussion so that you can move forward in a positive way and be a part of the AI discussion? So Sarah, would you please tell us a little bit about how you came to understand the role of anxiety in your in your teaching? Yeah, thanks. You know, having seen for a long time that the climate discussion, you know, for the last, you know, 20 years or something had really framed climate change as this really big thing that is somehow abstractly in the future, or maybe there's some permafrost that's experiencing it. It seems super abstract. And so a lot of people were studying in the field of climate communication we're studying things like, why is it that people do not, people have such a hard time wrapping their head around this risk and all of the different mental distortions or biases that our brains are set up for, according to a lot of different types of neuroscientists and stuff, why our brains are not set up to wrap around this particular problem. And that is fascinating. In fact, there's a recent podcast out by the person, Laura DeSantis, who does the Happiness Lab, and it's all about why our, why our brains are not set up for this, which is super cool if you want something really recent on it. But there's been a couple of books written on this too. Minding the Climate is one of them. And the the, the problem is that climate change is framed as a particular kind of problem that doesn't meet any of our like fear receptors. It doesn't meet any of our risk perception qualities. Like it's not like this evil thing coming after us. It's not a bear attacking us. It doesn't feel particularly urgent. There's no evildoer behind the scenes. There's all kinds of reasons why climate change doesn't feel like a risk to us. And so I had been thinking about climate change from that perspective and also criticizing the framing of it from a justice perspective, because climate change is often used as kind of like a, a throwaway blame, right? Like, oh, climate change is causing this problem. It's really easy when you say that to not identify any particular person who's behind making the worst things happen for climate change. And maybe we can get make the step to say all of humanity is the cause of the problem. But it's, it shouldn't, we shouldn't be saying that. We should be directly thinking about the top oil executives who are really the, the people who are causing the problem. And so there's all kinds of ways that climate change is framed that A of all make us not figure out, not know really how to deal with it, and B of all make us feel completely powerless, which is really the source of the climate anxiety. The powerlessness is the source of the climate anxiety. And I think a lot of educators around climate change and maybe AI too, they go around saying, here's how big the problem is, right? And they don't talk about how it is that um, your brain is going to wrap around that and therefore set you up to engage it or attack it or tackle it or integrate it into your life or imagine your life with it in it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think one of the things we can talk about if you want to is thinking about the future, right? Like if we can't imagine a future with this terrible thing, then we're, we're definitely going to stick our head in the sand, maybe jump off a cliff. You know, there's all kinds of things that that particular futurelessness causes us to cause anxiety around. In your book, you mentioned that students can envision the end of the world, but not a vision of the post-fossil fuel world. And so similarly, when I'm talking to people about the future with AI, it could be one that is very different from one that they tell me, which is informed by science fiction. And, and so one of the things I've been thinking about is, how do you, how do you turn that huge, big, monolith of fear and anxiety that and, and give people a way to see a future 
than to make those little steps to get there because humans losing their agency. This is not just about losing jobs. This is. Yeah. I mean, I would say that two things. One is that it is more to go to these like mental biases that we have. Humans want to, are more likely to grab onto the apocalypse than to some sort of slow transformation with minimal changes happening, right? So that is actually a form of negativity bias that's in our brains. And lots of people have talked about that. So, so it's pretty, I would say natural or normal in quote marks to, to imagine, to understand why people go there, right? They go to the apocalypse. It is also the way that dominant society and most popular culture and a lot of the alarmist rhetoric in news media are framing the problem too, right? So negativity bias is also reproduced in those spaces where everyone's consuming that information and consuming that discourse. And so there's never this gray area, both and area, you know, where the Venn diagram meets and there's this messy middle ground portrayed in dominant society, because that doesn't make for good storytelling or Hollywood blockbusters or people watching the news <laughs> or doom scrolling, right? I mean, like the de- negativity bias in our brains feeds the negativity bias, especially in a situation where we have corporate media. So there, that's that's a big part of why the apocalypse on any of these fronts is going to be more accessible to people than something much more nuanced. But that's to our great detriment. And a lot of people in the climate world will tell you why that's to their great detriment. I'm sure there's the equivalent in AI as well. But, you know, I think also another factor around this has to do a little bit with that point of powerlessness that you mentioned. I do think that the sci-fi imagination of we are losing all that makes us human is a, a crisis that has had many iterations historically. So, you know, all kinds of things, if we look at a historical perspective, have made society question whether or not humanity is going to be replaced by some kind of machine or animal or plant or whatever. And this is what sci- the nature of sci-fi is about. Cars, so, calculators. You, you, TVs. You yeah. You Autonomous. name it, right? Like all the things. And sometimes it's not even technology, right? So there's there is a long history of, of the alarmist rhetoric around new technology and new new inventions, new innovations change. that will make humanity, yeah, any kind of change. So I, I do think that that, that changes against the, those mental biases that we have do not like change either. So there's some just like architectural things in our brains here that don't like AI, they don't like climate. <laughs> Awareness that that this hits us viscerally doesn't give us that next step to cultivating a radical AI imagination. In your book, you talk about a radical climate justice imagination. So can you tell me a little bit about your experience with your students? How do you educate but keep students engaged? Yeah, I think one of the things is that I've replaced my emphasis on content that I want them to know with a centering of their emotional skills to deal with that content. And so I would say that every time we're teaching about a topic, whether that's AI or climate or any justice or anything, there's like a hidden emotional curriculum. We often talk about a hidden curriculum being about, you know, whose voices are represented and whatever. But I would say there's also a hidden emotional curriculum to all of our messages, right? And so are we asking people to go go along a particular emotional journey whereby at the end of our time with them, they are super empowered and feel like they can tackle this problem. In psychology, they call it pseudo-inefficacy when you don't feel like you can tackle a problem because it's so big and you're so small. And once I learned that idea that the problem is so big or it's portrayed so big 
And I am portrayed so small, right? Which is, of course, how capitalism would like us to think of ourselves. We just give up. We don't even try to tackle the problem in the first place because we perceive ourselves to be without power, pseudo and efficacious. And, you know, that's a that's a mental trick. You can untrick that, right? And so when I started to realize that my students were drinking the Kool-Aid of how they had no power and they were drinking the Kool-Aid that the problem was so big and unstoppable and inevitable, all these aspects to the narrative of climate change, inevitability, blah, 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 that this was um, all stuff that that wasn't necessarily factually true. And so on the one hand, I could teach them rationally that these things weren't true. That would be helpful. But if I also realize that everything we're doing has an emotional hidden curriculum and people tend to take action and engage when things are feeling like a carrot rather than a stick, they feel positive rather than negative. There's pleasure instead of fear motivating it. They're way more likely to act act on those emotions, those positive feel good emotions than they are on the negative emotions. So, you know, if we want people to do stuff or change behavior, we should activate the pleasure seeking machines that are their brains <laughs> instead of the ones that are fear based which does motivate behavior, but usually really for the short term and often just to get away from the thing that's causing fear, not to actually make substantive change in their lives. So around AI, what, how does this apply? I'm sure your audience can figure that out, but there's applications yeah. there. You know, pleasure rather than fear is a way more substantial long-term motivator. I, I think about these things every time I see a headline about, oh, we missed this target. Now it's irreversible. The earth's going to hit this temperature and, you know, what's the next follow up to that? Sometimes I read those stories and I'm like, well, what's the what's the average person's takeaway supposed to be now? Well, guess I can burn all the fossil fuel now because we're already going to get Absolutely. there. Right. I mean, yeah. how, how do you approach that framing and what's your response to the framing of, of that futuristic? Yeah, outlook? there's a couple of strategies, some and different people. It works differently with different people, of course, because mm -hmm. some not all students and not all you know, folks engaging with a big problem like climate or AI are coming from the same place. But in general, if we're talking about people who are heading down the kind of alarmist apocalyptic track and they need to be kind of wheeled, reeled back in, right, and given some agency and empowerment, those folks tend to do a lot better when you, you right-size the problem. So making sure that the problem is broken up into chunks, right? Just like we think about growth mindset or anything else, right? <laughs> like productivism, break down the problem into actionable chunks, right? And also there's the movement a lot in climate spaces to making things really local. And so one of the reasons why, like, for example, the Sunrise Movement and various different factions of the climate movement have been really successful at getting people involved is they'll say, yeah, climate change is this big problem out there, but here's how in our local community it's affecting us. We can build resilience. We can build adaptation. We can we can do some mitigation. There's all kinds of actions that can be taken at a local or small scale level. And it's really about kind of connecting the dots between what's right in front of people to this big, big thing that's out there to give them that sense of agency. And there are other strategies, too, but that's just a, an example. Excellent. You you note in your book to take care of yourself first. With burnout, you talk about taking care of yourself first, and that's not a zero-sum game. You know, this is a this is about spectrums and and gradation and gray space. But I wonder if this is also an area in the post-COVID world or the COVID endemic world where we missed humans so much that the connectedness of working on projects in a shared manner or of saying, hey, I don't like the way that my data is being collected. Does someone else feel that way in my community? Or, you know, and that community could be a virtual 
domain. But if that could be akin to what you're talking about for say, hey, my, my local stream seems to have more trash in it than it used to, how can I work on that local problem? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that speaks to highlighting or surfacing the method or the modality over the end game or the outcome. So one of the things that we don't often think about that can be a great comfort in this, in some sort of like, you know, in the poly crisis crisis that we're in, right? This notion that like everything is a big crisis and it's urgent and they're all connected and you know, AI is part of that, right? I mean, authoritarianism and this and that and the other, right? We're having all these crises that are kind of feel interconnected. And I think that when that starts to happen, psychologically, people just shut down. You know, those those headings that you mentioned actually have been shown to have the, like a backfiring effect where people disengage. So yeah. they don't activate engagement as maybe the authors of those titles might hope, right? And totally. so, yeah, I think that there's, You know, there's a sense of like, if the goal is long-term engagement and empowerment and participation by as many number of people as possible in making sure that a particular problem is having the least harm as possible, which is both climate and AI, I'd say, then we got to keep people engaged for the long term. And that kind of endurance, that kind of like, oh, it's a marathon, not a sprint mentality is really important. And it goes right up against, it completely contradicts the kind of urgency narratives or urgency that's implicit in all those headlines you described. And I'm sure there's a lot of urgency around the apocalypse of AI too, right? We got to do something about it right now. And the right now thing just hijacks our amygdala and makes us shut down. It doesn't actually activate our most wise uh, response. So yeah, there's, there's real parallels there for sure. Thank you. I I liked how you also said when it's about taking care of yourself, it's okay. It's important to be very mindful of your attention because connected to these extreme headlines, it then is the feedback of how does that make you feel if the goal is to be engaged and to have a life where you make a positive contribution over the, the narrative and timeline that, that you may be on this planet. How do you resist the impulse to engage with every intense story and really view your attention as something precious that should be focused. That's very powerful because in enragement is engagement is the code word for the code line for the um, social media algorithms, YouTube, Twitter that really get that make the money and get people to act perhaps not in the best way for their own psyche, but also in a way that creates this kind of fiery pit of, of group group chaos. I don't know. I'm trying to be very abstract and not say, not use coarse language, but I think we all know what I'm saying. People freak out and they create a vacuum and everyone freaks out together and it's exhausting. And while we all need to go and yell into the void every now and then, I do think that saying, how do I, how do I focus my attention on these problems? Do you have tricks that you've that you've taught your students on how to to really take that on? I love that. So you're making me laugh so hard, Sarah. But yes, I laugh in like because I know what you're talking about the the screaming into the void and the anger role. So yeah, I think media literacy is a critical tool. I think students need people need to know how those algorithms work around outrage. I think you know actively 
removing oneself from that is critical. I mean, there are so many people from like, you know, teenage eating disorders and mental health and Jean Twenge and her iGen stuff. And I mean, there's everyone on the planet is recognizing the harm of participating a ton in the kind of politics of outrage and the and the spirals that you just described so beautifully, Sarah. So, you know, climate's the same thing. The doom scrolling thing has the same psychology to it. And I think the problem is that people feel like if they're not paying attention, then they're not being vigilant and that somehow that that's part of their ethical responsibility. They may feel like they can't do anything about it, but the least they can do is stay on top of the news, you know? And I think that that's a real unfortunate assumption. And I think people... We need to really investigate that and push back on that. That action, that, that watching news so much actually paradoxically or ironically undermines their action. It, in fact, is not an action. And there is so much more they can do with their time that's not paying attention to the news to do things that would make the news better. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I'm going to watch the news as kind of a disavowal of engaging. And that sounds paradoxical, but that's what I think is going on. Yeah, we, we participate in that stuff because it's actually entertaining and it strokes a lot of dopamine centers around fear, but it doesn't actually solve anything. And so, Nikki, you, yeah, attention is a big part of my of what I think about. And I think that the work of like Jenny O'Dell, who's written How to Do Nothing and Saving Time, are really experts on this, on the sort of craft of attention in this particular moment that we're in. We are... The, the conversation around attention and how it touches climate, how it touches mental health questions, how it touches, you know, our attention is what's being making us not see ourselves as a social fabric and individualistic and perpetuating all the problems of, you know, the pandemic created around isolation. I mean, there's so many ways that attention is kind of a common thread through all of these things. And yeah, I, I ask my students all kinds of ways to pay attention to attention. We, we have assignments and stuff. It's fun. <laughs> I'd argue, I mean, it, get, it can get you more TV viewership minutes and more retweets when somebody can boil something down into a binary. Oh, you might not realize it, but I'm right about this. And Absolutely. there's only one other yeah. side and everybody else is wrong. And you can get a lot of support from people who believe that. And it can, I think, kind of snowball and create yeah. a visual scene for the audience that, oh, there is just this one side and everybody's behind this which is yeah. far less productive than being able to find common yeah. areas of interests in, you know, sectional circles and other arenas. Right. Yeah. And those, if you put out an idea, that's like a little bit of gray area, like, but, and mm -hmm. those things will not go viral and those ideas won't, won't penetrate the masses through, through social media. People have to actively seek that out. Mm -hmm. And that is a discipline. I would say that that's a practice and an art that people have to learn. And that's part of what we should be teaching in like college, for example, and in high school. I mean, the social media trap is destructive for so many reasons, but for that reason right there. And we want to know why we're having such trouble politically and culturally right now with, you know, tribalism and culture wars and all that. You don't need to look any farther than the algorithms. <laughs> yeah. Yesterday I, I saw a talk by a Swarthmore graduate, Yul Roth, class of 11, mm. who was the head of trust and safety at Twitter for many years. And he said many of the same things that you know in your book. He said, resist the impulse to engage online. He supports strategies for staying sane online and to think of informative, constructive ways to be without the the kind of pinballing between destructive and toxic ways. You know, so it's a it's again not a binary, but it's a path. 
And well, I also want to just, oh, sorry, sorry, Sarah, go on. Oh, no, I was just going to say, and I, I think that the, that the connection that he noted about online toxicity of anxiety then leading to apathy resonates with, with what you're saying. Please. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I was just going to say that you just made me think of another chapter in the book, which is about feeding what you want to grow, which is sort of a, a, a thread through a lot of wisdom traditions and spiritual practices. But I think a lot of because of the ways our brains to circle back to what we said earlier about negativity bias, our brains don't want to look at what's going right. And most consumer worlds, most capitalist consumer worlds would like us to keep ourselves focused on what's not right and what's still lacking and what's scarce in our lives and what we need to do Scarcity. more of or buy more of or be more of, right? You and can so sell the, more things when the, you position things. You like can that. sell more things if people are not feeling like, you know, they're always feeling like there's scarcity in their lives and they need more stuff. They, not, they don't have the stuff. And that there's problems out there. I think with my students, one of the things that we practice is, yeah, there's a lot of bad stuff out there. And maybe in all your classes, all you're learning about is all the bad stuff. But there is, in fact, also a lot, a ton of good stuff. It just doesn't make the media the same way. It's slow and it's ugly and it's not very media consumer. And it's like we don't want to lull ourselves into complacency if we start talking about how things are going well. But one way of thinking about it is maybe more of a spiritual practice around attention to go back to that about feeding what you want to grow, which is that, yeah, we can put our attention on all the bad stuff that's happening, but that will actually make that stuff not just bigger in our heads, but bigger in reality. And if we start putting our attention on, if we look around and say, what's going right? You know, where is there something going right around AI? Where is there a community that's doing the right thing? And put our attention on that stuff. Those things will actually get bigger. So there are two ways to get rid of bad things in the world. One is to shrink the big, big bad thing. And another way is to make the better thing bigger. And so this is a very much, you know, you know, concept that many people have talked about who are systems change thinkers who talk about, you know, if you it's, it's not enough to just simply criticize the thing that's bad. What the real creativity, real courage is, is around building the thing that you want to see instead. And you may not have any imagination what that looks like, but you got to there are little parts of it and pockets of it around us at all times. And it's just a matter of learning how to see those things. And have you had students say, hey, this is the climate justice topics I'm dealing with are affecting a broader set of topics than I feel comfortable working in? Yeah, definitely. Have you, have, how yeah. do you address that? Yeah, I think that part of, so there's a there's two things working kind of at, at odds with each other here. One is that when we teach climate justice, one of the things that we're doing is we're saying, there's a systems theory approach to this, right? Like there's, and you think about Donella Meadows and people who talk about systems theory, it's like what the idea is that like above the water, the ice on the iceberg, what you see on the iceberg is different icebergs across the water that seem disconnected. And that's like different forms of crisis, like racial justice crisis over here, climate over here, authoritarianism over here, AI over here. But when you dig down deeper and get down to the root of it, you see that Similar systems or ways of thinking, actually, is what uh, systems theorists talk about, these mindsets that produce the, all those systems, right? That there's some, you can sort of like get the most leverage for your in, interventions if you go down deep, deep down into the, into the base of the iceberg. So that's, 
suggesting that it's all interconnected and that can really be overwhelming for students, right? Like if I pick on this one over here, though, you know, will that really affect, you know, anything? I'm just talking, I'm just putting a Band-Aid on something, right? There's a feeling of if I just tackle one thing, I'm just putting a Band-Aid on it. I'm not getting to the system of it. And so, yeah, I think that part of what I'm trying to teach students or the way I approach it is you can't, if you assume that you are too small to fix this problem, you have drunk the individualism Kool-Aid of America, which is to say that you are not the only person out there trying to fix this problem. And there's all kinds of people, to go to a completely different metaphor of the elephant, you know, there's all kinds of people pushing this elephant from different angles. And at some point, lo and behold, you may be feeling like you're just putting a pinky under their trunk, but the elephant all of a sudden is levitating. You know what I mean? It's because there's a whole lot of people engaging in this from a lot of different places. So yeah, and that's not covered in the media, right? That's not something that people, you know, talk about me. So how would you know unless you were tapped into that community all the time, you know? And having these topics being so complicated and interconnected also behooves more connection between AI and climate justice community because the insecurity of, oh, this is my little domain, but this problem is harder than my little domain can also, unless it's mediated with engagement, it could, it could yeah. again, turn into apathy. Let me read uh, one little summary that you have in your book that I thought was a nice way to kind of think of, think of how to actionably take some learnings. And you talk about resilience. What does resilient action look like? It could start with taking care of yourself so you can go on with your life, but ultimately it must become a mutually reinforcing dynamic between the personal and the collective since part of our personal resilience results from the sense of community that comes from participating in civic life. Everything from voting for candidates we believe in to participating in a world-building culture shift. It all matters even if we can't see the immediate effects. I found that very inspiring because that points to how we can take care of ourselves in the face of all of this anxiety. Thank you yeah. for that. Yeah. Thank you. I think it's yeah, like, it's like the great it. irony of having a screen-based culture and that everything's right in front of yeah. us, but at the same time we feel so isolated from so many other things because of it. And I, to me, that, that's what that speaks to. Exactly. And with many people feeling, especially in data privacy, that the horse has already left the barn and we shouldn't work on creating better data privacy because my data is already out there. It's very short-sighted because it doesn't say, well, you know, you're, you're going to have children perhaps, and how do you want their data to be treated? You know, we're, we're at the very beginning of this discussion. Like what is, what is data ownership? These social platforms have to keep the lights on. You know, what is free? How is something a public square, even if it's a privately held company, you know, what, what does censorship mean? Why do we why do we have rules about what we say to each other? Take the basic form of safety. Yeah, that reminds me of that. What was the comedian that an AI generated a film about the comedian that super insulted his whole family? He's dead. That comedian, I can't remember. Are you talking about George Carlin? Carlin? Because we just discussed <laughs> yeah, yeah, him on yeah. an episode a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, right. I was. <laughs> I mean, right. The whole point of that, right, is to sort of answer some of those questions. I think, Sarah. Um, yeah. Exactly. And we hope to encourage people to be engaged and to be honest about their fears, because that is one of the first ways that we can, you know, if you share how you, 
what you are fearful of in this domain, it is one way to identify how you can use some of these strategies. And you mentioned attention. Next week, we are speaking to someone who's involved in Masakane, which is an African AI focused community. And it's working on projects by Africa for Africa. That's really saying the languages and the challenges that are resonating and pertinent to many people's daily lives have not been addressed. Well, I, I think to what you're saying, Sarah, I think it'd be a great way to end this interview to ask Sarah here, other than her amazing book, which we'll put a link to in the show notes, what resources do you recommend people look to, to, to get some better handholds on these big issues? Well, yeah, there's, there's so many different arenas where people are trying to really engage in this for a long, long time. Folks like Joanna Macy have been doing a lot of this work and, you know, I can imagine it applying to any kind of, you know, crisis that's going on or that you're thinking about. Her work is called The Work That Reconnects. You can look it up. There's all kinds of practices you can do through that. And she's sort of an eco-Buddhist spiritual leader type. She's in her 90s now. (laughs) But her work has really rippled out and people are still using The Work That Reconnects and her book, Active Hope. I love Rebecca Solnit's work on this stuff. Rebecca Solnit brings a really beautiful frame around temporality to a lot of her work and a real shifting of the lens around instead of thinking all the time about what we would lose if you know, we make these sacrifices to address climate change or we make these sacrifices to fix some problem. She's always reframing, what would you gain? What could we, be, what, what are we missing out on right now that could be gained by this beautiful t- transition right away from fossil fuels? So there's, Rebecca Solnit's work is really healing for me. I just love it. Joanna Macy's work is really beautiful. And I do, I actually have turned a lot to Ecodharma and mindfulness stuff. There's so much wisdom in, you know, thinking about thinking through like both secular mindfulness and also kind of the way Western Theravada Buddhism has been taken up in in climate circles in the U.S. So I, yeah, those are the tools that I've been using. And also, also I got to tell you, I'm bringing that to the classroom. I'm bringing that to students. I'm thinking about you know Trisha Hersey's beautiful work on digital detox and rest is resistance and pushing back against productivism and urgency and like you were mentioning earlier, Sarah, about aligning yourself with just thinking about what who what you money make or what your job is and all of these kind of bigger spiritual questions or existential questions, if you will, seem to be at the core of of, of all these other bigger problems. And so I, my invitation is whatever works to get you asking those kinds of deeper questions. Awesome. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, this is a great we'll discussion. Have all this is a total these... change of pace and I, I really appreciated yeah. it. Yeah. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll have many of the links to these, these resources in the show notes so that if folks are interested in learning more and also yeah. Sarah teaches it, Cal Poly Humble. Oh, and I would Cal say Poly. also Adrienne Marie Brown's work. I'm always touting her work. I love Adrienne Marie Brown's work on emergent strategy. She has a book called Emergent Strategy, another one called Pleasure Activism, Holding Space, all kinds of stuff about holding change. And she's all, she's got she's, everything we've talked about. She's got a whole treatise on and all of her work. And she's great to listen to on her talks too on YouTube. So beautiful blog and poems and all kinds of stuff that she does. So please include that too. I think that her, her strategies would probably really apply for a lot of the questions you had around AI. Too. Excellent. Yeah. I also appreciated her bell hooks approach to uh, capitalization. So, yeah. yeah. 
Thank you yeah. very much, Sarah, for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode of the AI Artifacts Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope that you'll visit us on AIartifacts.net. There, you can subscribe to our Substack show notes newsletter and discuss anything you just heard. If you like what we're doing, we'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast and rate us on your platform of choice. The show is produced by Brian Wormuth and Sarah Luger. Our visual design work is from Corey Scarin and Scarin Design. The music on the show is from Vanishing Horizon by Jason Shaw and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 United States license. <laughs>